All right, so we continue in our study of, of Proverbs this morning, and our topic is that of laziness and work. Um, if you were with us several weeks ago, Will taught on a lesson through Proverbs 6 where he kind of hit on some of those things, so we're just going to take a look back at some of the things that Will shared and expand on those uh, a little bit. You'll notice there on your note sheet that a lot of this lesson is taken from Anthony Salvaggio's book, The Proverbs Driven Life, and I just want to commend that book to you. I think you can get it on Kindle for like $5.99 or something like that, uh, but it's really good when it just speaks about the practical things that Proverbs uh, brings out. Uh, so I just want to commend that, that book to you as we will be referring to it uh, in, in the coming lessons. Uh, so as we begin looking at this topic of laziness and work, we want to begin where the Bible starts on this issue, and that is in the beginning chapters of Genesis. And what we see there in Genesis, that God is a God who works. Um, he created the world in six days, and then he rested from his work on the seventh day. And when God created man in his likeness or in his own image, he made us to share some of his attributes. And one way in which we resemble God is that, like him, we are to engage in work. The biblical work ethic, um, as you're probably familiar, was established when God commanded Adam to subdue the earth and to work the garden. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read that, where it says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then going on into chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Uh, so there we have uh, an understanding of the biblical work ethic. And that's important for us because the Bible shows us that work is not a curse. <laughs> and oftentimes people refer to that, our attitudes reflect that, right? We see it as this burden. Now certainly the curse has affected that, right? It makes our work much more toilsome and, uh, and difficult at times, but we have to be careful not to categorize work as a product of the fall, as if we were just laying back in hammocks, uh, you know, prior to that and do not doing anything. Uh, work is a, a blessing from God, but not part of the curse. Uh, rather, what we see in the scriptures is that it's a calling and that it's a blessing from God that, that he has given to us. And because that's true, that should affect how we view our work, right? We, we should pursue our work with faithfulness and, and a vigor, right, in order to bring glory to the one who gave us this calling. Uh, and that, that's the heart of the biblical work ethic uh, that we see. Now, another note here before we dive in a little more specifically into this, as we think about work, we don't only want to think about it in terms of what we get paid for. Uh, there's some work that we don't get a physical paycheck for, right? Uh, there's volunteer work. 
uh, like that, which takes place here at the church. We have tons of volunteers who just jump in and use their gifts for the glory of God who don't get a physical paycheck. Um, uh, another aspect would be a mother working at home with the children. No physical paycheck with that. Uh, your friend asking you to help him move on the weekend. Uh, another aspect of it. So we don't want to compartmentalize work so tightly uh, that we miss the broad range uh, in which it can be used. And another aspect of that is too is uh, throughout our lives, there's different seasons where God calls us to do different things. I remember recently having a conversation with one of our older saints who was discouraged um, because she was looking at her life and realizing that she wasn't able to do the things that she was once able to, right? And because of that, she thought that she wasn't really working for the Lord. And what we have to understand is that God has different seasons of life where we're doing different things. So even though we may not have the same abilities that we did at one season in life, we don't want to see that as we don't have anything useful to do for the Lord. Uh, the saint who is unable to maybe physically do some of the things that they've been able to do in the past, who now uses that time uh, to pray fervently for the saints, is working, amen, and, and working greatly. Uh, so we want to make sure that we have a, a good broad understanding when we think about the concept of work. Salvaggio, in his book that I recommended there, uh, offers this definition for work that I think is, is helpful. He says, work is any task or set of tasks to be performed in pursuit of a particular goal. Again, that may include physical labor, but it also may not. Uh, so that's something that we want to keep, keep in mind. As we think about work, we are typically prone to two extremes, right? One, on the one hand, uh, we can become one who constantly complains and whines about work, right? Uh, who, who finds it to be a burden and is therefore prone to laziness, right? Can any of you relate to that? Have you seen that as seasons in your life where you just complain and whine about the work that you have been given? And when we take that view consistently and we just stay in that place of laziness, this is what the Bible, and in particular here in Proverbs, would be called the sluggard, right? As we have seen, the sluggard views work as a necessary inconvenience on the way to the true goal, which is not working, <laughs> not, not doing anything. And then the other extreme would be for us to worship our work, to find our identity in it. Um, and this is what the Bible would call idolatry, right? So on the one hand, you have the sluggard with his laziness. On the other hand, you have the person who exalts work to too high of a place, which is idolatry. Uh, this person would be characterized today as the workaholic, right? Left to ourselves, we tend to one extreme or the other. We either have too low a view of work or we have too high a view of work. And so this is where, again, we need the word of God to bear upon our minds and renew us so that we can think rightly about work. Like every other arena of our lives, we do want to have our minds renewed um, through the lens of Scripture. 
We want to see it as a calling from God in which we can find personal satisfaction in what God has called us to do. And more importantly, in that which we can glorify God, right? That's the aim of all that we do. And if we see it from God's perspective, we won't look on it as drudgery on the one hand or as an idol on the other. Also, when we look at it from God's perspective, it it really helps us to see the spiritual significance of work. How often we tend to look at the work that we do, whatever that might be, as unspiritual, right? We, We can adopt this mindset at times that unless I'm preaching Jesus constantly to my coworkers, my labor is in vain, right, as I, as I go to work. And Christian author Paul Helm had this to say about that mindset. He said, Christians have become accustomed to think of themselves as having a spiritual life, which is sharply distinct from the everyday life in the family and from work and leisure. A spiritual life is a life of prayer and watchfulness, of Bible reading and church going. As a result of this distortion, instead of the Christian life being thought of as an integrated whole, it is artificially broken up into compartments which have little or nothing to do with one another. It is as if Christian responsibility ceases at the church porch, as if the Christian gospel has nothing to do with the pavement outside and the roads and motorways beyond. I think that's a great definition that Helm gives there, um, and it's, it's very helpful because we do have that tendency to compartmentalize our lives too much. Like, I'm working for the Lord here, but I'm not over here. I'm just kind of doing this. This is necessary. I've got to get this out of the way so that I can get to the real things uh, that God has called me to do. But the Bible doesn't allow for that type of dual-mindedness. Instead, it calls us to view our whole lives, including our work, whatever that may be, as consecrated to the Lord. The Apostle Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So Paul issues a clear, universal, unqualified statement here, doesn't he? We're to view everything we do, even even the seemingly mundane things in our lives, as opportunities to glorify God. And there's certainly no question that the whatever you do in that passage there in 1 Corinthians 10.31 certainly includes our work. Our work, whatever it may be, paid or unpaid, is spiritual in nature. We're doing it unto the glory of God as we should be doing everything in our lives. And if Salvaggio is right here where he says any set or task of works performed in pursuit of a goal, then most of us are workers longer than we actually think that we are workers. We're actually workers all the way until the end of our lives, whatever that may look like. We're workers longer than we pursue a career, longer than we're parents, spouses, whatever the case may be. So with that introduction, let's dive in now and look specifically at some texts here in Proverbs that deal with this aspect of being a worker for the glory of God. We're going to start here. This will be the third point there on your outline, consider the ant. Will, as I mentioned, taught on this a little bit. So we want to kind of pick up on this and discuss it a little more in detail. So if somebody can read here Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11 for us. 
Go to the ant, O slugger. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O slugger? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little holding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Good. Yeah, what, what a very clear picture we get here uh, in Proverbs 6 regarding our work. It, it gives us first that positive example to follow, to emulate, and the negative example to avoid. And so we'll start with a positive example here, uh, the ant. So go to the ant and consider its ways. And really, what, what a testimony this is, as Will kind of brought out in his lesson, um, that, that our view can be so uh, skewed of what work looks like that God has to bend our heads down to look at this tiny little insect crawling on the ground to have our minds renewed about what <laughs> we ought to be doing. There really is a, a testimony against our, our fallen nature um, as we think about going to school, to the school of the ant, and having to learn its ways. Uh, Charles Bridges comments on this irony. He says, Yet what a proof is it of the degradation of the fall that man, created in the image of God and made wiser than the creation, should be sent as, he, sent as here to this insignificant school for instruction. Uh, I think that's a, a, good, a good comment as we consider what God is pointing us to in this example. One day, praise God, following the Lord's return, we will indeed rule over a new creation with all diligence and wisdom and effectiveness and sinlessness that God intended for us. For now, however, we're reduced to being tutored by a bug. Um, and, and that is good for us, uh, so that our minds can be renewed by this. We might ask, how does the ant teach us about a biblical work ethic, right? Well, it does so in a, a couple of ways. First, by displaying this innate and natural desire to work industriously, right? The ant doesn't need to be persuaded or forced to work. Uh, this is clearly seen here in verses 7 and 8 which points out that the ant has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Unlike us, the ant does not need some form of accountability to make it work faithfully, right? It doesn't need any coaching, any, any pep talks, right? Maybe some of you have employers who are like, hey, we're bringing in this motivational speaker who's going to fire up the troops here so that everybody works more. No, the ants don't need that. Right? We need that, <laughs> but the ant doesn't need that. It, it works faithfully as it has been created by God. That is what it was created to do, and that's the point of the ant for us, is to remind us how we were created, that we were created to work for the glory of God. Just like the ant, we were created to do that work and to be steady in that work. Yet so often we need this strict work structure or these strong incentives imposed 
on us from the outside for us to remain diligent in our work. And this proverb calls us to work as we were intended to, and that is for the glory of God and in fulfillment of our purpose here on earth, and not because someone is watching us work or making us work. Uh, Paul picks up on this thought in the New Testament in his letter to the Colossians, where he says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That was a passage that I would keep uh, on my desk when I was teaching, when I taught eighth grade, because I recognized the tendency in my own heart that when one of my administrators walked into my classroom or my principal walked into my classroom, I I wanted to be busier than I was. Even though if I was in the middle of teaching, I wanted to do that more effectively. And I recognize that there's this desire in my heart to be a people pleaser, as I'm sure all of us can relate to at some level. And so this verse I had on my desk, and I would read it each day as I came in to remind me, the Lord is always here, ever present. He is the one to whom you will have to give an account. So whether or not your administrator walks in today, your work ethic should not change. Right? And I needed a daily reminder of that. <laughs> That's why I kept it consistently at my desk. And I'm sure all of us can, can relate to that. We want to remember that the Lord is sovereignly over all that we are doing and is watching all these things. And our desire as his children is to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. So that's what the ant uh, can help us to learn. Okay? On the back side of your sheet there, Let's take a look now at this, this aspect of the sluggard. So in Proverbs 6 here, you have this positive example of the ant, and now this proverb points us to consider the negative example of the sluggard so that we can avoid his ways. It warns us by illustrating both the nature and the consequences of being a sluggard. And first, what we see here is this proverb unfolds for us the nature of the sluggard. If you look again at verses uh, 10 and 11, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So you can see here that the sluggard's nature is very clear in the pattern of sleep, slumber, rest, right? Now, we all need sleep, so let's not swing to the other extreme, right? And, and again, that's our temptation, is I don't want to be the sluggard, so then you become the workaholic, right? And you, I only need two hours of sleep a night. It's not going to work. So we all need that sleep, but the sluggard doesn't get up when he wakes up, Right? Instead, he stays in bed, slumbering. The suggestion here is that he does this not merely once in a while, but this is his regular pattern of life, right? So, you know, don't feel guilty if you stay in bed an extra 15 minutes every, every now and then, right? Um, but this is, this is his pattern. He wakes up and he just hangs out in, in bed. This is what defines him. 
uh, he rolls back over. Uh, Will gave such a great example of this. You know, just this back and forth like a door on its hinges, right? Just this rolling, rolling over. Uh, Proverbs 26, 14 puts it this way. Uh, rather than getting up and going about his, his business, he just lies there. And when he's done slumbering, he's drifting in and out of dreamland, he still doesn't get up, right? He folds his hands across his chest. He lies there, resting and relaxing while the day slips away. The proverb helps us to see the consequences of what will happen if that is the regular disposition of somebody's life. Verse 11, the sluggard is warned here that poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Get in the habit of sleep, slumber, rest, and all the idleness and lack of concern for your work that this suggests, and you're very likely to suffer the hardship of poverty. Uh, By choosing not to be diligent, the the sluggard, in effect, chooses poverty, right? And this cause and effect relationship between idleness and poverty is a major emphasis, as you've probably noticed in the book of Proverbs. There's at least 14 passages that deal directly with this issue of idleness and its relationship to to poverty. I'm not going to go through all 14 of those, but there are a few that I do want to uh, point out here. Somebody can read Proverbs 19.15 here. Okay, so there you see the consequence of the sluggard or the slothful person. Proverbs 20, verse 4. Somebody want to read that for us? Yeah, thanks. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek a harvest and have nothing. Okay, so then there's the consequence again. Right? He doesn't do what he should be doing. He'll seek it at harvest and he will have nothing. And then one more passage here. Proverbs 20, verse 13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you'll have plenty of bread. Okay, good. Right. So there's the consequences that are laid forth there. The sluggard refuses to obey God's call to work diligently, and that embrace of sin has real consequences. Um, and when we think back to the ant, the ant was enjoying the rich abundance that was flowing forth from his labor. Uh, the sluggard, on the other hand, finds himself in a constant state of want. Um, and in a, in a prosperous society like America, with, with food really in abundance for us, uh, it's much easier for the slugger to avoid outright hunger than it was for his Old Testament counterpart. Um, even by the time of the New Testament, actually, wealth and, and social organization had advanced to the point that someone who had become poor as a result of being lazy was less likely to go hungry. Uh, Yet the lack of diligence that's displayed by these people, which kept them from being able to supply their own food, was still and is still a violation of God's purpose that ought not to be tolerated. Um, If you remember, this was Paul's meaning when he wrote this in 2 Thessalonians. This was a passage actually that Desmond referred to when Will was going through this lesson. 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 10 through 12 For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Um, and Desmond, I remember you brought out a really good point on that passage and highlighting that aspect of anyone is not willing to work. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the key in that passage. There's an unwillingness to work. It's not the person who's like, man, I'm putting out resumes everywhere. Somebody please help me find a job and nothing's coming to uh, fruition. It's the person who just has this mindset that I'm just going to leech off of everybody else, right, and not put my hands to the plow, so to speak. There were sluggards in the church here in Thessalonica taking a free ride, so to speak. And certainly uh, there is a place for Christian compassion to the poor. Uh, Some of the poor are sluggards, some are not, right? But sluggards will become impoverished, and the New Testament teaching regards sluggards is that any handouts given to them ought to be limited and temporary so that they might understand the necessity of responsibility and the diligence of work. And a refusal to embrace a diligent work ethic is sinful because it violates a primary call that God has given to us as Christians, right? If we're being renewed into the image of God and God is a God who works, we ought to be reflecting that in some way in our lives. The sin of the sluggard, like all sin, has consequences, as we see here, poverty and want. So you really get a good picture there of the positive example of the ant and the negative example of of the sluggard. Now, let's consider ourselves, right? That's the next section there on your notes. Uh, The lure of laziness. When Proverbs 6 challenges us to consider the ant and the sluggard, it is, of course, challenging us to consider ourselves. So we want to look at some of the traits of the sluggard as laid out for us in Proverbs 26, uh, verses 13 through 16, which I'll have up here on the screen. You can turn to that passage if you want, but I'll have it up here on the the wall for us. Uh, This is a helpful passage to, to think through. So, first, Proverbs 26, verse 13. Somebody wants to read that for us. A slugger says, there is a lion in the, in the void, a fierce lion in the streets. Okay. Uh, we, we get this colorful imagery here that the sluggard will say all sorts of things, even going to outrageous and ridiculous extremes in order to avoid work. Right? He'll lie to others, he'll misrepresent reality to try to get out of an unpleasant task, he'll lie to himself, he'll even admit to himself that he's avoiding work, but he'll try to suppress his conscience and rationalize that away. Now, I don't personally know anyone who's ever made the excuse given above here, uh, but in the absence of lines, our excuses certainly take on equally absurd forms as we think about those. Uh, two of the most common that Salvaggio brings out in his book that I thought were really good were what he calls the exception excuse and then the lowest common denominator excuse. And the exception excuse goes something like this. I'm entitled to goof off once in a while because I don't make enough money. I don't get enough vacation. I deserved that promotion last year and didn't get it. 
this company or my boss makes so much money, so how can it possibly matter anyway? All right? We can make excuses like this, and when we do so, our thought patterns are along the following lines. I'm an exception. I'm special and not like the others. Because I'm wise and reasonable, I see a bigger picture than the people who make the rules. Right? In my judgment, the rules aren't exactly fair anyway. So I think that I'll just change them a little as they apply to myself and won't mention that to anyone. And it really is astonishing. Although we may not come out and say that so clearly, um, how we often have those type of rationalizations go on within our hearts and how often we can try to rationalize that away and, and think of justifications for cutting a little bit here and a little bit there. And then Salvaggio gives the lowest common denominator excuse, excuse, which essentially takes the opposite approach. This excuse says, everyone else is taking it slow, why not me too? Right? So you just see what's going on around you? Let me just kind of jump in with that. Um, these guys are getting paid more than I am, and they're doing less work, so I'm going to bring down my bar as well. Right? So you're bringing it down to the lowest common denominator. The lowest common denominator excuse says, because I am the same as other people, I'm justified in being lazy. It's just another route to the same destination, which is not working or making excuses. And, and there has to be great mental gymnastics that we do in order to come to these justifications that we make, but we're willing to do them. We're willing to rationalize that away in order uh, to be lazy at times. So the sluggard lies and makes excuses. That's what we see there in verse 13. And then secondly, the sluggard takes no initiative, which is what we see here in Proverbs 26, 14, which echoes what was said in Proverbs 6. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The image of the sluggard who won't get out of bed but rolls back and forth as if he were on hinges really is a, a vivid one. But in another sense, the door, on him, uh, the door on hinges image also depicts someone who moves in a limited range and never makes any progress, right? So the same simple, unproductive activities are repeated over and over, and there's this expectation of a different result that would come out of this. It's easy and comfortable, so there's no challenge, no growth, no learning, no real progress for this person. And this kind of sluggard can actually perform some type of work, but he or she never presses forward into something better, more challenging, and more rewarding. Charles Bridges summarizes the sluggard's plight when he says this, as the door upon his hinges, where he is one day, one year, there he is found the next. And this is the person that just gets by on the bare minimum, and that's good enough for me and refuses to take initiative and this never-changing pattern of minimal exertion is seen. Uh, so that's a challenging one for us to consider as well. The third point here, which is out of Proverbs 26.15, is the slugger does not finish his work. Somebody wants to read Proverbs 26.15 here. 
The slugger buries his head in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. All right, so here again we see this ridiculous example employed to make a point, and that is this, that the sluggard consistently fails to complete his tasks, right? So let, let's think about that for a minute. How, how do we engage in this type of perspective, right? We, we wouldn't be seen, hopefully, as one who's just like this and then not getting it up to actually feed ourselves, but how do we do that? What are some ways that you see that in your own life? What is some of the ways that you see in those around you? Um, I, th I think it's, I'm, I'm talking about a friend now, not me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I have this friend. Okay. Um, you know, you make plans, let's say, to be more faithful in your Bible reading or your prayer time in the morning, and you go great guns for a couple weeks, days maybe, and then it slowly starts. And I, I see it as not Assuming something, yeah. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Those New Year's resolutions usually die in the second week of January if they get that far, don't they? Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's a challenge, Rusty. So the one that that comes to mind is the one that there is a modern day version of this exact uh, thing, where you know we're called to be good stewards of what we have. Yes. Cooking is super easy, yeah, but, yeah. but it's even easier to just not do that and like spend a bit more and get some fast food. Or yeah, food. yeah, that's true. That, that's a, that's a convicting example. Yep. That's good. That's good though, Rusty. That's that's very true. Absolutely, good one. Okay. Anything else you think, Diana Lynn? For me, it's um, the games on my phone. Yeah. Down in the middle of it and play a couple games, you know, and then of course that doesn't work. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So I have to do my work first. Yeah. Right. So the prioritization. Yeah, that's good. And that's. I think we can all relate relate to that as well, George. I just have a question. Did you find my calendar? <laughs> yes, I did. Exactly. I was using you as an example, but I didn't want to bring up your name. <laughs> That's good. I think it's everybody's calendar, isn't it? Yep. So yeah, so there's, there's many different ways, right? We can allow those sinful distractions to take us away from, you know, what we, what we should be doing. Um, procrastination is easy to slip into our lives. And uh, I, I fight that a lot. When you get a lot of things on your plate, you, you try to compartmentalize what needs to be on the front burner today. And then you just have things that are back there on the back of the stove that simmer for like two or three years and you forget that they're back there, right? And you're like, something's burning. And it's back, oh yeah, it's been sitting back here for, yeah, somebody had a hand up over here. Sorry, Debbie. I apologize if it got mentioned, but what I struggle with is the uh, waiting for Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Avoiding it. Yeah. And you don't mean to. Right, right. You keep telling yourself you're going to get to it. Sure. Yeah. But the only way to do that is to Right, right. Yeah. Has anybody read um, Tim Challey's book, Do More Better? Yes. I okay. Was going, I was going to send you a text. 
on that. Okay, good. No, no, I haven't read it, so I was gonna, I was gonna seek somebody's advice on that. It's, it's a short book, it's easy to read, but as a matter of fact, even this morning, he recommends, he's, there's three ways that he recommends how to be more productive, not in the sense that you do more, yeah. but what you're supposed to do for the glory of God, that yeah. you find ways to do it. Yeah. And there's a nap that I use all the time, and I, as you were talking, there were certain things that came to my mind, and I put it down, and after that, I prioritize, so this way I get to do what's really important. And it's right. still a work in progress. I'm not an authority, yeah. but sure. I realize, and, and the book is a recommended for everybody. It's a short book. It's yeah. not really pricey. I think $10 yeah. you can get it. Highly recommended. Yeah, so I, I've seen it a couple times. It's called Do More Better by Tim Challies, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. Um, so it's one of those books that I want to get to. It's kind of ironic, right? So going back to going back to the end and then listing all of our excuses, and believe me, I can fit in the many categories. You know, the, the, it's funny, being an entomologist, I understand the ants. Oh, yeah. They're calling me a whole lot better. And, and when I read this scripture, it, it, it really fits because everything that the ant does is for the good of the colony, right. whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, anything it does, it's focused on one thing and one thing only, to grow, preserve, or defend the colony. Yeah. And no matter what it does, it will die doing that. A yeah. soldier does not think about what it does to defend the colony. A worker does not hesitate to grab the eggs when they leave, when they get the nest gets kicked or right. broken into. It. Yeah. If there's no hesitation. It's just right. that quick. Wow. So that's what makes the ant tricky as a pest control site. Yes. But, um, but when you think about it and you break it down, yep. and you look at the entire thing, everything is for the colony. The, co the queen will send pheromones for what they need. If it's soldiers, it's soldiers. If yeah. it's workers, it's workers. It's yeah. Workers. Amazing. It's an, it's an amazing thing for a I don't want to get sidetracked on this too much, but tell me real quick, like I got these sugar ants in my house, and, and when they, when, and I've seen this with other ants, but they, they come in contact, quick contact with each other, and then they keep going. What's happening in that contact? <laughs> like I want to know, it's like something's going on here. You guys are plotting something in my house. So and, two, one of two things is happening. One, they're either passing off a food source, or they're passing off a feather. There you go. See? Now, now I know they're good. So just another point to add. Yes. So Matt Berman's got one called What's Best Next. Okay. It's very similar to the challenge book. But again, it's, a, it's where they work out similar tensions as you kind of think about productivity. Excellent. Okay. What's Best Next, Matt Perryman? Yeah, Perman, Perryman, something like that. How do you spell it? Do you know? Okay. Okay. Good. What's best next? Okay. Good. Thank you. you want to learn more about the ants? Watch movie ants. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Thank you, George. Yep. All right. So good stuff there. Thank you, Jay. That's going to help me. Um, all right. Let's take a look at this uh, next point that we have, which will take us to. Um, that should be Proverbs 26, 16, I think. And I have 15 up there. So, the sluggard is proud. The sluggard is proud. This should be verse 16, I believe, which says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And, and here, we really come to the root sin of the sluggard, right? We saw hints of this earlier. 
that the slugger just considers himself to be smarter than everyone else, right? He may not express it that way. He may not even admit that to himself. Um, may have trouble seeing the extent of that which is true, and we should expect that because sin is deceptive, and so we don't understand our own motives at times. Um, but examine the sluggard's actions and his true beliefs and his motives, they will become clear. And at the core of that is self-centeredness and self-love, which is rooted in pride. And what we see here in verse 16 is, once again, the language is carefully tail- tailored to strengthen and emphasize the central point. And that is this, that the sluggard does not merely see himself as wiser than friends or peers or people in general. No, the one who won't get out of bed in the morning or follow the rules at work, the one who lies and makes excuses, the one who won't finish what's begun, thinks himself or herself wiser than men who answer sensibly, as this passage says. These are men known for the quality and the consistency of their judgments. They're truly wise, yet the sluggard thinks little of their opinion. Even if seven such men disagree, which again, I think that seven is purposeful there, bringing out the biblical number for perfection. It's used very intentionally. The sluggard remains unconvinced. In other words, you can just bring wise man after wise man to this person to counsel him, and they'll consistently push back on the counsel that is given. And the reason for that is because the sluggard thinks that he's got it all figured out. He rejects the counsel of others, the calls to leave his bed, get to work, to be diligent and thorough, and honor authority, to take on new challenges and complete simple tasks. All of those are disregarded by the sluggard. And because of pride, he or she tends to regard others as fools, which again is ironic because the Bible calls that person the fool, but yet this person sees the others as the fools. Especially, and when we think about work, your bosses, employers, teachers, parents, any authority figure that is in this person's life. Sometimes this takes the form of actual mockery, uh, but it always begins with a heart attitude of dishonor and disrespect, and it begins with pride. And that dishonor and disrespect, and we have to understand this, is actually against God. That's the, that's the reality of it. That disrespect and that dishonor is actually against God because, again, God has set up the structure of work and what that ought to look like. God is the one, ultimately, who is being disrespected and dishonored. So the sluggard here just makes excuses, does the bare minimum, fails to complete tasks, rejects the counsel of others. That's the complete picture that you have of the sluggard here in Proverbs. Being a sluggard is the fool's way of responding to God's call on our lives to be productive and diligent for His glory. The hardworking and industrious person, the person who works hard for the Lord, is truly wise. That's the wise one. While the foolish sluggard reaps the painful consequences of his or her sin. Now, going on to this last section here, we've talked a lot about the sluggard and looking at that, but we don't want to leave this conversation again without looking at this last point, the trap of the workaholic. 
The sluggard, as we have seen, refuses to embrace God's calling to work diligently, but there's an equal danger at the opposite end of this spectrum, the trap of the workaholic. And an honorable, God-glorifying approach to work does not involve a continual obsession with productivity. We're called, certainly, to be workers in whatever capacity God has called us, but we have other responsibilities in our lives as well, right? Children, spouses, parents, church members, citizens, stewards of God's material gifts, all of these things the Lord has given to us. So God calls us to have the right heart attitude toward each role, which will result in right priorities. And so the first point that I just want you to jot down here is the call to be balanced. The call to be balanced. Exodus 20, verses 9 through 11. Can somebody read that for us? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the soldier who was within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day Okay, thank you. So we see here that God's pattern of creation consisted of work followed by rest. Uh, Because God doesn't need to rest clearly, he's teaching us what is best for us. And this passage really establishes in all human life a boundary between work and rest. Uh, Many of the tools and institutions of our society may be up and running 24-7, but you and I do not function that way, do we? God hasn't designed us to run 24-7. At the level of the individual, there must be rest, and it must be intentional, right? Chosen, intentional respite from productive labor. To this, the workaholic typically responds, you don't understand. How can I possibly stop? I've got bills to pay, right? I've got other responsibilities in my life that keep me from putting on the brakes of all the things that I need to get done. If I take a rest now, I'm going to fall way behind and have no time to be able to pick it up in the future. Ultimately, I'll fail at what I'm trying to attain. And I think at some level, most of us can understand that temptation, right? We we see things before us, we deal with the reality, and we say, if I don't do this, we think through in our minds what that looks like. It's easy not to accept God's call to be balanced in our lives. And that's why he also gives us this call here to reject idolatry and that call to trust. At the end of the day, that's what it really is, isn't it? is as a call to trust God. Do I believe that God in his wisdom has created me to rest at times? And if I run through that roadblock, essentially I deem myself wiser than the Almighty. Right? And so we have to reject that idolatry. And that's the second point that I want you to write down. The call to be balanced and the call to reject idolatry. Now, there's a passage here that deals with this aspect. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, often we just spend time looking at the top portion of that passage, and we don't give priority to what's said underneath it. That covetousness is idolatry. And we don't think of the ways how covetousness can easily seep into our lives if we're not guarded. Lust and evil desires can have as much to do with material greed as they do with sexual immorality, right? Paul is telling us that unbridled lusts and inordinate affections of any and all kinds are inconsistent with the Christian's calling. Now, generally speaking, and again, that's what we're looking at when we talk about Proverbs, if you remember, is that they're general statements. They're not definitive every single time. But generally, people become workaholics because they covet something. Maybe greed for something material, some material possession. Um, Maybe it's fame, right? Again, you find your identity in your work. Um, You want to be known or power. You you covet that power. You want to have that authority over other people because your identity is, you feel that your identity is wrapped into that. You, You can even covet mastery of a skill or a craft so that you elicit praise from those who are around you. Right? It can be a good intention, trying to do well at your work, but how easily it can seep out and seek the praise of others. Look how good I did. Look how good I'm doing at whatever it is that God has called me to. And sometimes the coveting is just not attending to other God-ordained responsibilities in our lives. If I stay later at work, then I won't have to deal with the kids when I get home. They'll already be in bed right? Or my spouse will be tired and I won't have to engage in conversation when I get home, right? There's all kinds of different motives that can go on in a person's heart, leading them to covetousness, whatever that may be. Like, I need my alone time, right? I need that time. So if I stay at work longer, I can have that. It's possible to covet all of those things that I just mentioned at the same time. (laughs) The fame, the power, the money, the neglect of other responsibilities in our lives. So again, we go back to what Proverbs has been constantly exhorting us to do, and that is to guard our hearts with all diligence, for for from it flow the springs of life. So we have the call to be balanced here, the call to reject idolatry, and then the call to trust, which will be our last point here. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, if somebody can read that for us. I was actually going to bring that up. Good. <laughs> I want to read it. Yes, like please. Um, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, they walk the watchman stays awake in vain. It is a vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Amen. So, you know, this, this psalm sounds like something out of Proverbs, and rightly so, because the psalm is attributed to Solomon. Whereas in Proverbs, Solomon goes to some lengths to warn us against the error of the slug, sluggard. Here in Psalm 127, he balances that by warning us against the error of those who have this, this work, workaholic mindset. And when does our toil become vain? When does our toil become vain? Well, it becomes vain when we detach our work from trust in God, when we 
seek to wrestle control from God and take our lives entirely and exclusively into our own hands. And we're reminded very vividly here from this passage, the Lord must build the house, right? He is the one that must do it. He's the one who must watch our city. It's the Lord who must be in all our labors or they will prove fruitless. And so when work becomes our object of worship and devotion, we've embraced that vanity. We've divorced God from our labors and we've become idolaters. And in the final analysis, we can stop working and rest because we believe this fact that God is sovereign, right? He doesn't need me to run the world, right? He puts me to sleep seven or eight hours a night to remind me of that, right? You woke up this morning and the world is still turning and everything is still going on, right? And it's to remind us of our utter dependency upon God. If we're not pursuing his priorities, which include rest as well as a broad range of responsibilities, then our efforts will ultimately be futile, no matter how hard we work, right? There's nothing more frustrating than putting your hands to something for a long period of time without fruit coming out of it in some way, without just walking away feeling frustrated. And at times like that, we need to ask ourselves, Am I following the Lord's ways in this? And you might be, because there's things that we're going to put our hands to that we may not see any fruit of immediately. It may not be till glory that we see that. But it is a good question to ask ourselves because we do have that propensity to try to become independent and work apart from the wisdom of God. It's extremely liberating to recognize that God does, in fact, give us enough time to finish everything that he's actually called us to do, right? Uh, that's what I think Chalice probably gets at in that book is just, and, and maybe uh, Matt something yeah. there. Matt <laughs> P., um, yeah. Uh, is that, that mindset of prioritizing what God has called us to do, right? We can often fall into that trap, like, I don't have enough time for this. But when you step back and you think about priorities in your life, you realize, I actually do have enough time for these things. I'm just allowing other things that are not as important to come in and crowd out those things that are most important. So God gives us time each day to spend with him in his word and in prayer, uh, to spend with our brothers and sisters in Christ, Um, to spend with our families, to spend at our places of work if we will prioritize uh, correctly. And any of those areas, if they're suffering because of the amount of time that we spend doing other things, again, we want to take a close look at those and kind of reevaluate our priorities in our lives. Perhaps we've become or we're becoming a workaholic or an idolater who is foolishly dethroned God by believing that his ways are inferior to our own. So in conclusion here, because of the fall, and then I'll get to any questions, work will be, as it says in Genesis, by the sweat of our brow and filled with thorns and thistles. There's going to be boredom at times in our work. There's going to be a, a, a tedious nature to it at times. There will be those mornings when the alarm clock goes off and all we want to do is roll over like a door on its hinges. Uh, But again, 
We want our minds to be renewed so that we can recognize that what a privilege it is as Christians that work is not merely a task or a job, but that it's a gift from God and a calling from Him. And when we work, we have the opportunity to imitate the God into whose image we are being fashioned. When we work, we have the opportunity to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ, who is at still in work, at, still at work in us. Right? He continues to work in us that which is pleasing in His sight, as Hebrews 13 says. And so it's no wonder that when we diligently work, and we've probably all experienced that this at some level, that there's a fulfillment that we feel at the end of the day, of a, of a long day that's been a hard day maybe, but there's this sense of fulfillment that we've worked for the glory of God. So I hope that these lessons here in Proverbs can guide and direct us into this well-balanced, God-glorifying view of work. Okay? Norm. Farron. Two comments, and then I, then we got to wrap. So we'll go. It says, uh, if a sluggard claims to be a Christian, his laziness laziness casts a shadow on the, on the blessed name of Christ. His testimony to the culture brings ridicule on Christianity in general. And they are speaking about children and family. So train your children to despise laziness and find satisfaction and joy in work so that the, the generation uh, can be raised to the world. Amen. Well, well said. Good stuff. Norm. Uh, and then we'll close. On the subject of completing work and our, our limitations, uh, we have to remember that there's only one man that ever said it is finished, and it was the Lord. Amen. So it is both an encouragement and yes. also a call to reality that no matter how much work we do and how successful we are, yep. we'll never be able to say it is finished. Right, right. Yeah. But we can rest on the fact that he has said it. Amen. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time of study and just looking at this topic of laziness and work. And Father, we pray as we've looked through that you would please help us to have that balanced view, that we wouldn't exalt work too highly and become obsessed with it in an unhealthy way, but Lord, that we wouldn't have that laziness about us as well. And Father, we are prone to one of two extremes, so we beg for your grace and the power of your word to continue to renew us, Lord, so that we would think rightly um, about our lives and that we would truly be able to use our lives in a way that glorifies you, both in our work and in our rest. So we thank you for that, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.